Hello and welcome to Historical Hysteria, my name is Nicholas Ward, and before we begin today I need to start off with a quick correction. In episode 27, the five most insane US presidents, I made some bad mistakes. I attributed a quote by John Adams about Thomas Jefferson to John Quincy Adams, and I said that Andrew Jackson was accused of being illiterate. Jackson was accused of being illiterate, but mostly by political rivals. Jackson had a rough way of spelling and his letters were full of little grammatical errors, but he certainly wasn't illiterate. There's no excuse for that, I took a piece of historical propaganda, and I just didn't do my due diligence. So I am very sorry about that. And I'm going to add a correction to that episode. I'd like to say thank you to Reddit user Masshole76 for pointing that out to me. But anyway, on to the show, because today we are on the trail of the credit score. That simple three-digit number that dictates so much of our modern life. I have a slight confession to make before I start this episode. I don't believe in credit cards or debt. To be clear, I understand they exist. I, it's not like I think they're like a, sca a Sasquatch. I just don't believe in going into debt. Uh, with obvious exceptions, I don't have a cool half mil lying about to buy a house. But for everything else in my life, I've very much gone by the idea that if I can't buy it outright, then I just can't buy it. As an Australian, this isn't a particularly big deal. There's lots of young Australians who don't involve themselves in debt till they have to. But I, I remember the first American I told about my hatred of debt. I was on a train to California. They were like, what do you mean you don't have a credit score? He said it like I just slapped his mother. Credit scores are so ubiquitous in the USA that it is difficult to buy a phone without one. I tried to rent a car once and you should have seen the cashier's face when she realised I was trying to rent a car with a debit card. Credit scores have infected almost every avenue of modern life, from getting a job to renting an apartment, but what even is a credit score and where do they come from? At its simplest, a credit score is just a number based on a person's finances and previous debts that tries to quantify how reliable a person is at paying off their debt and how profitable they are for the debt seller. Pay off your debts in time, it goes up, miss a payment, it goes down, pay earlier, it goes down, because it's a number by those and for those who sell debt. A high credit score gives you access to higher lines of credit, lower interest rates, more jobs, apartments, better insurance, while lower credit scores do the opposite. The modern, ubiquitous credit scores that will follow you through till death were invented way, way back in the ancient days of 1989 by FICO. And believe it or not, I can't tell you how your score is measured, because it is an industry secret. So where did they come from? Was it a cocaine fueled fever dream of the 1980s? Yes, probably. But the credit score has far older and far weirder roots than Reaganomics in the Clinton era. So let's jump in our time machines and travel back about 150 years to the birth of modern society. The word credit comes from the Latin he, she, it believes. Today, the term is usually used when referring to a small to mid-scale short-term loan. Loans and interest stretch back thousands of years, and the first written records of financial loans are found in the Code of Hammurabi from the 18th century BCE. However, today I want to talk about credit and credit cards as we understand them today. It might seem logical that buying with credit is a modern concept, because in terms of pure dollar value, debt is at levels never seen in history, but in some ways, we buy less on credit today than we ever have. See, during the 19th and 20th century, virtually everything could be bought on credit, and virtually everyone dealt in credit, from your grocer to your local publican. Why? Well, like today, people didn't like walking around with vast quantities of cash on them. Also, unlike today, hard cash was often hard to come by. Coin shortages have plagued many societies throughout history. 
This form of unofficial credit is probably as old as humanity. Where our modern understanding of credit, the credit card and the credit score comes from is from humble origins in the 18th and 19th century. Beginning in the 18th century, certain entrepreneurs began experimenting with a new kind of store. A store that sold everything. Not just fabric or hardware or cookware, but one with separate sections, each section acting like its own department. A department store, if you will. Now, who invented the first department store is a surprisingly difficult question to answer, but between the late 18th and early 19th century, various people began experimenting with larger, less specialised shopping centres. One of the first of what we today recognise as a department store was Harrods in London, established in 1824 by Charles Henry Harrod as a haberdashery. The young Harrod expanded this store from fabrics into groceries, stationery, medicine and perfumes, finding success in each venture. Between 1824 and 1883, he would slowly build a retail empire and conglomerate his business into a series of buildings in Brompton. And when his mishmash of stores caught fire in 1883, it gave him the opportunity to build the first purpose-built department store in the world. Around the same time, Harrods became one of the first places in the world to begin issuing and formalising lines of credit to their regular customers. In the late 19th century, issuing lines of credit became the norm for department stores, and a formalised credit system began to evolve. This began with paper credit, initially just a piece of paper or card identifying the bearer to make easier the tracking of what they had bought and how much the store had trusted them. These credit papers and charge cards spread to businesses that dealt with high-value purchases around the world, from department stores to hotels to oil companies. These credit Chits took the form of everything from plastic buttons to metal cards, and all of them usually involved the person's name, signature, and the number of their account, identifying the person as having their own personal line of credit at the store. The problem with this system was trust. It worked perfectly well for the aristocracy, the wealthy, respectable business owners, and for people you knew personally. But the cost of making a mistake could be disastrously high. Without computers, tracking fraudulent purchases and con men who skipped town was nearly impossible. However, rewards were also high. Businesses would have quickly realised people spend more on credit than they do on cash. And with Western economies booming and demand for credit skyrocketing, the demand for a solution was also high. The answer was the credit score. Today, skipping out on your debts is almost impossible. Thanks to computers, your financial records can be tracked across multiple banks, phone companies, even the court system, creating... A terrifying dystopia of permanent surveillance that is one government change away from permanently destroying all past concepts of freedom. I mean, a wonderful opportunity to prevent minor financial fraud. The credit scoring system had roots in the late 1800s credit boom. With the credit boom came the associated industries, entrepreneurs who offered businesses a simple assessment of trustworthiness of potential creditors. In 1899, two Atlanta businessmen, Cater and Guy Wolford, formed the Retail Credit Company to assess insurance claims in Atlanta, Georgia. But the brothers soon hit on an even more lucrative market, credit scoring. The RCC, using its experience assessing insurance claims, began working with stores wanting to issue credit to new customers. The RCC would investigate these potential customers, assess their trustworthiness, and deliver a report to their client. The demand for this business was huge, and the company quickly spread throughout the USA and Canada, maintaining assessment files on millions of people. If your grandparents or great-grandparents took out a loan anywhere in the USA in the early 20th century, it is very likely there was a dank basement in Atlanta with a massive roller drawer containing their names. And department stores across America and Canada began relying heavily on the retail credit company to assess new customers for creditworthiness. So how did so how did these venerable companies assess people? Surely through nothing but the staunchest 
and most rigorous of scientific methods. Let me just reach through time for a moment here to pull your great-grandmother's credit report out of the RCC vault. Let me see. Miss Jenny Smith took two loans paid in full. Full-time employment, good income, one child. Alright, all good so far. Was at home on the 26th of February at 11am. Okay, that's a bit creepy. Neighbour says she's a slag. Possible alcoholic. No husband. Untrimmed grass. Don't like hair. Maybe communist. High credit risk. What the hell am I reading? <laughs> Let's just say the RCC conducted extremely personal studies of their targets, sending out private investigators to dig through people's lives. Things which affected your credit worthiness included the cleanliness of your, the cleanliness of your yard, rumours about your marital status, and whether you answer the door on a weekday, you work shy git. Unsurprisingly, race, gender, political affiliation, and sexuality all became part of this weird credit witch hunt, and all counted against your application. Yes, the super secret credit scoring system was basically nothing more than superstition. This wild speculation got so bad that a mathematician and an engineer teamed up in 1956 to create FICO, a mathematical credit score designed to create an impartial credit scoring system. The birth of FICO came just in time because the credit industry was just about to receive its next big break. Prior to the 1950s, the limit for credit chits was you could only use them in one store, but this changed in 1951. In 1949, Frank McNamara was eating at Major's Cabin Grill in New York when he realised he had forgotten his wallet. And determined never to be that embarrassed again, he decided to come up with a solution. What if there was a credit card like a department's... What if there was a charge card like a department store's credit chit, but one that was backed by a financial institution instead of a store, so you could use it anywhere? Over the next two years, Frank McNamara secured funding for a new charge card venture, venture called the Diners Club, and in 1950 he returned to Major's Cabin Grill and paid with a Diners Club credit chit made from card, a literal credit card. Unlike a check, this charge card meant a business put trust in the Diners Club instead of in your personal finances. This embarrassing meal is known rather grandly within Diners Club as the First Supper. Initially targeted at restaurants in New York, it spread like wildfire, and by the end of 1951, the business had grown from 200 members to 42 thousand, and by 1965 it had over one million cardholders. Up to this point, credit chits had only ever worked locally within your city, or at the very most your region. Your bank was not much more help because most banks were also local. But by the 1950s, with the growth of the automobile, a new generation of consumers was crisscrossing America. The need for a generic charge card was suddenly blindingly obvious. With the post-war boom in interstate travel, the market was enormous. American Express followed next in 1958, and in 1959 it issued the first plastic credit card, shortly after the precursors to both Visa and MasterCard were formed. Initially, the Diners Club acted like an actual club, mostly of, of Frank McNamara's friends and social circle, but as the card exploded in popularity, they needed credit checks. But prior to computers, how do you vet people you give these cards to? The RCC and FICO were more than happy to fill that void. Unfortunately, do you answer the door on a weekday wasn't exactly the most bulletproof credit scoring system on the planet. So it wasn't long before people began to take a look at companies like the RCC and ask how they assessed creditworthiness. 
1970, the US Congress passed the Fair Credit Reporting Act, which exposed the data the RCC had been using to assess people, giving further strength to the growth of new mathematical scores used by groups like FICO. Thank God. And just five years later, the RCC changed its name in disgrace, going into a long and deserved slide into ignominy. It never recovered and became a little rinky-dink operation called um, Equifax. Never heard of them. What? What's that? Equifax is is one of the three largest credit reporting agencies in the world. Huh. Well, at least there's FICO. Sorry, sorry. What's that? FICO doesn't actually assemble its own data. But then, wh where does it get its data from? Equifax. Huh. And uh, and uh, how how does how does Equifax get its, its data again? It's classified. Cool, 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 cool. Hmm. Well, I'm sure they definitely learned their lesson in 1970 and never did anything dodgy ever again. What is it? They were fined twice for violating the Fair Credit Reporting Act. Six separate security breaches, multiple lawsuits, 57,000 consumer complaints. Well, that sounds dodgy. Yeah, let's, let's get into that. Well, all right, part two, the murky world of modern credit scoring. What's that? We're out of time. Okay, well, the story of credit gets kind of boring and modern after the 1970s. Credit would hit another boom in the 1980s during the neoliberal deregulation of the economy, which gave birth to the modern debt economy and the all-encompassing credit score, which was born in 1989 in the offices of FICO. But if you want to know more about the murky and weird system of modern credit scoring, pick up a newspaper because it's ongoing. That is the story of the credit score from the dank basements and PIs in Atlanta to today when they totally aren't doing any of that dodgy stuff anymore. I mean, probably. That is all we have time for. Thank you for joining me. Feedback can be sent to historicalhysteria at gmail.com. Check the socials, r slash historicalhysteria on Reddit and at Manic Twist and at Manic History on Twitter. And finally, before I leave, let me leave you with this. During the medieval period, the barnacle goose, a type of goose native to the North Atlantic region, was thought to breed immaculately, like Christ, spawned out of barnacles on floating driftwood. In fact, so convinced were some people in Europe that the barnacle goose was conceived immaculately that a bishop by the name of Geraldus Cambrensis, otherwise known as Gerald of Wales, published an article titled Barnacle geese should convince the Jew of the immaculate conception of Christ, in which he argued that because the barnacle geese were conceived immaculately, so could, so too, could Jesus. He was wrong. The folklore had gained popularity amongst ecclesiastical groups, thanks to Irish monks who would eat the geese during Lent, arguing that it was immaculately conceived and therefore was not flesh. However, at the Fourth Council of Laturan in 1215, Pope Innocent III decided to prohibit the eating of geese during Lent, arguing that though they did not understand their reproduction, it was not immaculate. 